The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this chance we have every Sunday to come and to worship you, but also to hear from your word, Lord. God, even as we pray now, Lord, we we can think of so many ways that our prayer life gets distracted or distorted or forsaken. And so, God, pray that as we look at your prayer today, that you would reinvigorate within us a desire to come to our Heavenly Father with our petitions, with our requests, with all of our desires. And most importantly, just to know you more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The prayers of children are a beautiful and wonderful thing. Angela, age eight, prays, Dear God, this is my prayer. Could you please give my brother some brains? So far, he doesn't have any. Another child says, Dear God, thank you for the baby brother. But what I prayed for was a puppy. Or, dear God, could you please send Mikey Johnson to another summer camp this summer? Debbie, H 6, says, please send a new baby for mommy. The one that you gave her last week cries too much. (laughs) And my favorite, dear God, I want to be just like my daddy when I grow up. Just not so hairy. (laughs) Do I get an amen to that, children? You know, prayer is a beautiful and wonderful and simple and yet mysterious thing. You know, it is often confusing to us, even though many times maybe we do it or maybe we don't do it. But we have questions like, you know, if I ask God for something and I don't get it, should I keep asking him or am I just bothering him? We'll ask questions like, you know, if if God doesn't answer my prayer, is my prayer really doing anything? Is it changing anything? Is it really effective? We have questions like, what if I'm not passionate about prayer? Should I still pray? Or what should I be praying for? Or how much should I pray? Or even how should I pray? Well, today Jesus seeks to answer many of these questions and other questions in a pattern that we have been, that the church is called the Lord's Prayer. And so if you would, please open up to Matthew chapter 6 in the Red Bible. It is page 811 in the Red Bible. It is page 1027 in the Children's Bible. Today we're continuing our series about the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon given in human history. And this might be one of the most famous parts of the most famous sermons in human history. It's been often called the Lord's Prayer. And so as Jesus talks about spiritual disciplines, as we talked about last week, Jesus focuses in on the practice of the spiritual discipline of prayer. And so let's read together Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through 15. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, And pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. 
And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You know, as we look at this passage, I'm curious by a show of hands, how many of you sometime in somewhere in your lifetime have memorized this prayer called the Lord's Prayer? Go ahead and stick hands up. So the majority of you have memorized this prayer at least sometime in your life, and you can recite parts of it. I was struck by a quote from Martin Luther this week, a very convicting quote. He said, how many prayer, pray the Lord's Prayer a thousand times in the course of the year and yet have never really prayed it or tasted it. This could be said of much of my life, and even sometimes today, praying this prayer without even really understanding what it means, not understanding what some of the confusing language is trying to communicate. And so I pray it without ever really tasting the sweetness of it. And so my hope today is that as we look at the Lord's Prayer, that maybe once again, or maybe for the first time, you would see this prayer, and it would be delicious to you, that it would be savory to you, and that it would appetite your heart to reach out to your heavenly Father. In this passage, we're going to see three directives from Jesus about prayer. The first is to pray intimately. Secondly, is to pray kingdomly. And thirdly, is to pray dependently. So let's look at those three directives from Jesus on prayer. First, pray intimately. I don't know if you noticed this. We covered part of this passage last week, but verses 5 through 8, Jesus is telling us how not to pray. And then in verse 9 through 13, he's giving us a corrective and saying, then pray like this. And so much of the content of verses 9 through 13, the second half of this passage, are correcting verses 5 through 8. And so in verse 7, Jesus says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not condemning long prayers. We pray or we see times in Scripture where Jesus goes and he prays throughout the night or he spends long extended times of prayer. But what Jesus is warning us against here are vain prayers. You know, many of us have memorized the Lord's Prayer in this room, which is a good thing, but also a dangerous thing because Jesus warns us about heaping up empty phrases. And that might be exactly what we do when we pray the Lord's Prayer. We are saying things that we don't even know what they really mean. You see, Jesus doesn't just want us to say our prayers. Jesus wants us to mean our prayers. One preacher put it this way. He said, God does not care about the length of your prayers, but the weight of your prayers. The great church father Augustine said, there is a difference between much speaking in prayer and much praying in prayer. And so what Jesus is doing is he's focusing in on our heart. 
And he's warning us against vain repetition, trying to get God to listen to us. See, just prior to this, or just after this, we'll see that Jesus in his prayer says, pray like this. Jesus doesn't say, pray this. He doesn't say, repeat this. Well, he says, pray like this. And so the Lord's prayer is giving us a pattern of prayer, the fundamentals of prayer. Jesus did not intend to give it to us, to give us an empty phraseology to go to God with. Now, there are certain segments of the church that will say, here's this prayer. Pray this third time, 30 times and your dog will be healed. Or pray this 60 times and your sins will be forgiven. Or pray this 50 times and this will happen. And Jesus is warning us against such practices. Because such practices can be very cold and impersonal and lifeless. Jesus goes on in verse 8 and says, Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. When Trish and I lived over in Bloomer, Wisconsin, we decided to move to St. Louis to go to seminary. And so we put our house on the market and we tried to sell it on our own for a while and we didn't get much traffic. And so we finally went with a realtor. And we found this realtor who offered a lower percentage and we thought this is good and so we'll go with them. But it was a disaster. There was one time I remember calling the realtor uh, needing some information and two days had passed and he didn't call back. And so I called him again. Again, two days passed. He didn't call back, called him again. Two days passed, didn't call back. And so finally I pulled out his business card and I saw his, his address for his office. And so I thought, you know, I'm just going to go to his office. So I go to his office and it turns out that it's his house. And so I knock on the door and a guy opens the door and I ask for my realtor And so he calls out his name and he comes around the corner. He's in boxers with no shirt on. He comes to the door and he is furious that I would show up at his house. But I didn't know what else to do because he wouldn't return my phone calls. Contrast that with earlier this year. I went to my dad because I had a need for something. And I did not have to repeat myself. He was listening and he was ready to respond. You see... To the realtor, I was just a customer, but to my father, I'm a son. To God, you are not a customer. To God, you are a cherished child, and he is ready to respond. In fact, like a good father does, he even knows what you need before you ask for it. And so we don't need to try to repeat ourselves to get his attention. We don't need to say, please listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. God is listening to you. He hears you. He loves you. He delights in you because you are his child. You are not a customer. You are a son and daughter of God in Christ. Jesus reminds us that our father is in heaven. Before this prayer, using The word father in reference to God was unheard of in almost every religion. And it was very rare in Jewish religion. So Jesus to come and start the prayer by saying, our father who art in heaven would have been stunning to those in the crowd. You see, in the Old Testament, the word father was only used 14 times. And it was never used of a personal relationship between an individual and God. And so this language that Jesus is communicating to the people hearing it, it is extremely scandalous because it is way too intimate for a person talking to a holy 
God. But here Jesus tells us to come to God and to address him as daddy, as father. Now, I think I and maybe you often take this relationship for granted. That the God of the universe, the God who is in heaven, the God who has created all things and sustains all things and is governing all things, is your dad. He's your father. You know, it's so hard to illustrate this, but to a lesser degree, this is probably what Malia and Sasha Obama feel. Barack Obama, at least for the next few months, is probably the most powerful man in the world. He's called the leader of the free world. There are millions of people in submission to him. The most powerful military in the world is in submission to him. He has the ability to launch nuclear weapons. All day long, people call him Mr. President. And yet at the end of the day, Malia and Sasha get to come come home. And just simply call him daddy. As amazing as that is, your ability to call God father is even more expansive. In Romans 1.15, the apostle Paul says, You have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In Christ, your primary relationship with God of the universe is father. And so you don't need to beg him. You don't need to repeat your request. It's good to be persistent. Jesus talks about that in another parable. But God is listening to you. He hears every prayer that you offer up to him. He misses nothing. And so we come to God intimately as our father to bring to him our prayer requests and our praises. We must also pray not only intimately, but we must pray kingdomly. You know, one of the cute things about the children's prayers that I read at the beginning is how childish they are. They are, they are so self-centered, right? They're saying, uh, Lord, please make Mikey Johnson go to another camp so I don't have to put up with him. Or thanks for the baby, but I wanted a puppy. Many times our prayers are no different. Many times our prayer life is extremely self-centered, primarily praying for our needs. Lord, help me get this job. Lord, help me get this girl. Lord, help me get out of this trouble. And what we'll see here in a bit is there is nothing wrong going to God with your requests and your needs and your wants and your desires. That is a good thing to do. But the problem is, if you are the primary person in your prayer life, then you are centered on the wrong person. As we look at Jesus' model of prayer, we see a completely different priority in his prayer life. You see, the Lord's Prayer, in the Lord's Prayer, there are six petitions, six requests that Jesus makes of the Father. In verses 9 through 10, we see the first three petitions, the first three requests, which are focused not on us, but on God's glory. And then after praying for God's glory, Jesus moves on to teach us to pray for our deepest needs. And so as we look at these petitions, we see that we are to exalt God the Father. And so I quickly want to go through these petitions. First, he says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed 
be your name. This term hollow means to make or to acknowledge holiness or to consecrate, to sanctify, to exalt and to set apart. Now, when we pray this, we are not praying that God would make himself holy because he is already as holy as he ever could be. But what we are praying is that his holiness would be acknowledged in the depth of our heart and throughout our world, that his fame would be loudly declared and accepted by the world that he created. And when it says, hallowed be your name, the word name in the scriptures means more than just a name. It means the entirety of a person. And so when we come to God and we pray, hallowed be your name, we are praying that all of God would be acknowledged and glorified by his creation. You see, in our fallen, sinful nature, our primary desire is to care for ourselves, to exalt our own name. We want to be recognized for our achievements. We want to make a name for ourselves in the community. And so when we pray, hallowed be your name, what we are doing is we are seeking to decentralize ourselves and centralize God into our life. Because God's glory and God's name is not only the primary purpose of your prayers, but it's actually the primary purpose of all of human history. Jesus continues, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. That's petition two. Right now we live in a time that theologians call the already and not yet. That Christ has brought his kingdom of redemption at his first coming. He has started redeeming things by healing the blind and the sick, but most notably by reconciling God and man together. And yet his kingdom is not completed. There is still plenty of brokenness in this world. There is still plenty of friction in family relationships. There's still plenty of racism in our nation. There is still plenty of bigotry. There is still plenty of, of grievous acts of sin being committed against one another. And so when we come to God, we come and we pray that his kingdom would come, that his kingdom of redemption would come, that he would make the sad things come untrue, that people would become awakened to God, to the ways of God, that they would love one another sacrificially, and that he would reverse the effects of the fall and all the brokenness that has swept over the world. And so we pray your kingdom come. And finally, the third petition, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's so interesting, that second part of the phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. And one of the things that this made me think about was that before Jesus came to earth, Jesus was in heaven. Jesus knew how holy and happy heaven was, that all of the angels were obedient to God and that they were joyful and they were celebratory. But then he came to earth. And he was able to see the contrast between the two. He saw the joy of heaven and the brokenness of this world. He saw the obedience of heaven and the rebellion of this world. And so he teaches us, Lord, let your will be done. Now, this is not only in the world at large, but also us personally. And God, by his grace, has told us what his will is for our life. He's given it to us through his Holy Scripture. He says, this is how you live life to the fullest. This is how you live life to the happiest. And he gives us his scripture so that we can live according to his will. But then we pray, Lord, let your will be done, that he might work his power in us 
to obey his word. And so prayer is not primarily about bringing God into line with our will, but bringing us into line with God's will. For centuries, people believed that the sun revolved around the earth. And they thought they had proof of that. The sun rose in the east and it set in the west. And it looks so small compared to our planet. Scientists balked when Nicholas Copernicus suggested that the earth revolved around the sun. It had never occurred to them that this might be true. Decades later, Galileo adopted Copernicus's theory that the earth revolved around the sun. And what's so fascinating is that this made people furious. They were so angry that they actually arrested him, put him in prison, and then sentenced him to house arrest for the rest of his life. And you wonder, why is a theory like this make people so angry? Well, maybe it's because for the first time, someone stood up and said, we are not the center of the universe. We are not the center of our solar system. The sun does not revolve around us. We revolve around the sun. Centuries later, a Swiss developmental psychologist and philosopher was studying children. And he said, each child much experience, must experience his or her own Copernican revolution. They must learn that they are not the center of their world. Friends, this is not something that children need to learn. This is something I need to learn every morning. When I wake up, do you know what goes through my head? What's on my agenda today? What do I want to accomplish today? What am I going to eat today? How am I going to have fun today? It's all about me. And those are good questions to ask. But I need to get up and I need to focus and I need to say, Lord, what is your will today? Let your kingdom be done because I need to decentralize myself every morning. I need a Copernican revolution every day, multiple times a day to remind me that my life is not primarily about me, but it is about the Lord and his glory. And so we are to pray intimately. We're to pray kingdomly. We are to pray for his will to be done. Finally, we're supposed to pray needingly. You know, when a child is born, one thing that strikes you is how absolutely needy this child is. The child needs you to feed them. The child needs you to change them. The child needs you to roll them over. The child even needs you to support their neck. And what you realize in this moment is that this child is so needy that if you stop caring for this child, that they would perish. And what Jesus is telling us here, by telling us to call out to our Father, he's reminding us of how needy we are. You know, with petitions four through six, Jesus teaches us to come to God as children with our needs, not just our wants. And so petition four, he says, give us this day our daily bread. When Jesus teaches us to ask for bread, he is not just talking about bread alone, but all of our necessities, our food, our clothing, our shelter. Now, if you're like me, you probably look at this and you say, I don't need more bread. I have enough bread. I probably eat too much bread. But what Jesus is teaching us here is to foster an attitude of gratitude to remind us that everything that we have comes from the hand of God. And apart from God, we would have absolutely nothing. You see, one of the greatest lies of Satan 
is that you deserve. Satan tells us, you know what? Your life is hard. You've worked hard. You deserve to be treated like royalty. You deserve an easy life. You deserve a car. You deserve a TV. You deserve a house. And then it is, you deserve a bigger house and a bigger car and a bigger TV. One of Satan's greatest lies that we believe is that we deserve great things. But the reality is we only deserve one thing. And it's something that none of us want. Once we realize and admit that we deserve nothing, it is only then that we come to God in a spirit of gratitude, realizing that he has given to us food that we do not deserve, not only to sustain us, but to enjoy for his glory. We also come in a posture of daily dependence. Notice he does not say, give to us our weekly bread or our monthly bread. He says, give to us our daily bread. This is to remind the hearers of the time when the people of God came up out of Egypt. They were wandering in the wilderness and they had no food. And so God provided manna from heaven. And then he comes to them and he says, gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Of course, people went out and they gathered more because they weren't sure if the Lord would provide the next day and it would rot away or it would stink. Now the question is, why did God only provide enough manna for a day? Why didn't he provide for a week? Is it because God is stingy? Is it because God couldn't keep up with the demand? Well, of course, neither of those are true. The reason why God only provided for a day was to teach them that they need him every single day. To come back to him time and time again. And so here, God is teaching us as we come to him to ask for our daily bread, to remind us that we are in need every hour of every day for God to provide for all of our physical needs, but also for all of our spiritual needs. Jesus continues in petition five. He says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Debt here is used as a metaphor for the penalty for sin. You see, God has given us life and breath and bread to eat. He created us to live holy and happy, but all of us have sinned against God. All of us have rejected God. All of us have turned away from God and we are indebted to him. You know, it's interesting. If you look at the statistics, the American household averages $200,000 in debt. That could be credit card debt. That could be mortgage debt. That could be college debt. I'm guessing some of you here say that's nothing compared to my debt. Some of you say I have no debt, which is great. But imagine that if you are under this great debt and you, you lose your job and you have no way of paying this debt back. And then the bank comes to you and they say, we need the money now. We want all of it right now. How would you respond? You wouldn't know what to do. And so maybe you would walk into the bank and you'd walk up to the banker and say, listen, I know I owe all this money. I have no way of repaying it. But listen, in the prayer, Jesus says, forgive our debtors. Would you just be willing to do that with me? Would you just forgive my debts? Would you just wipe it out for me? What do you think they would say? They'd say, I'm not Jesus. Pay up. You see, we come to God with a great deal of debt. In fact, our debt is so great that it even beats out our national deficit. 
David tells us that when we sin, we sin against other people. But every time we sin, we sin against God. And so our debt continues to grow greater and greater. And our only hope is not to repay the debt, but for our debt to be forgiven. But make no mistake, forgiveness is never free. You see, forgiveness always costs the one who is forgiving the debt. You know, we have this great spiritual debt. And as we come to God and say, forgive us our debt, we are reminded that it comes at great cost to himself. You see, if the bank forgave you your debt, they would have to absorb that money. They would have to absorb that loss. And what God has done for us is he has absorbed our debt upon the cross. He's taken on himself our sin and our shame, and he has paid for it in full that we could be in right relationship with God once again. And then he raised from the dead to give Christ's righteousness to us. And so when we come to God, we are reminded of our brokenness, of our sinfulness, but also God's readiness to forgive. And we pray, forgive us our debts. And then Jesus continues, says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. I don't have a lot of time to go into this, but taking this in the context of the rest of scripture, we know that Jesus is not saying, God, if you want to know how to forgive other people, look at me and I'll teach you how to do it, right? Obviously, we're made in his image, not the other way around. Nor is, nor is Jesus teaching us that we, we have to earn our salvation by forgiving other people. And so what Jesus is communicating here, I think, is that in order for us to experience the depth of God's forgiveness with others, we have to experience the forgiveness. I'm sorry. In order, in order to experience the depth of forgiveness with God, we also, have to we also have to extend that forgiveness to others. And so he's telling us that in order to know and to understand and to enjoy the full forgiveness of God, we also must forgive those that are around us. Petition six, I'm running out of time. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Just to be clear, God does not tempt anyone. In James 1.13, it says it very quickly. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. And so if God does not tempt us, who tempts us? Well, it is Satan. It is the world. And it is ourselves. We tempt ourselves by our own sinful pleasures. We even read that when Jesus was led by the spirit out in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. You see, God does not tempt us, but God does permit temptation to come. One of the most interesting things is the Greek word here for temptation can also be translated trials or testing. And so as we read through scripture, we see this word is translated these different ways. Sometimes it's translated as temptation, sometimes as trial. And what's so fascinating is that whenever it is used of God's action, it is translated as a test or a trial. But when it's used of Satan in his work, it's translated as a temptation. And so what's fascinating about this is that the same thing that God uses to test us, to conform us into the image of Jesus it's the same thing that Satan uses as a temptation. This happens literally hundreds of times a day. Just share one example. I, was, I have a pickup truck now, which I'm very thankful for. 
Thank you, Lord. And um, one of the great benefits is that if you see cool stuff on the side of the road, you can pick it up and throw in the back of the pickup truck. So I was driving and, you know, those Goodwill boxes that they put in parking lots, those big metal boxes and people put stuff in there. While I was driving by one, there was this nice little table and these two chairs with cushions. I'm like, that would look really nice on my front porch and someone's getting rid of it. So I'll just pick it up. So I went and I picked it up and I took it home and I was telling a friend the story about how I got these. And they said, I think you stole them. I'm like, it wasn't, I stole them. Like it wasn't in the box. Like, no, but I'm pretty sure you stole it. So I was convicted. So I went to Goodwill. I'm like, I may have stolen from you. And the lady's like, what? You may have stolen from us? And so I kind of played out the scenario. And she's like, you stole from us. I'm like, okay. All right, I did. (laughs) And so she just charged me a few bucks and I was on my way. But, you know, here's the thing is that there was this temptation to not go do anything about it, right? But it was also a test from God to conforming to the image of Christ. You know, I'm, I'm stuck with this question. The question was in my head, Dan, is your integrity worth 10 bucks? Is it worth $10? But then the other voice screaming in my head is, it's not a big deal. Just let it go, right? Satan screams and the Holy Spirit whispers. And so the same things that Satan uses to tempt us to bring us into misery and distance from God is the same thing God uses for his glory to conform us into the image of Christ. Finally, he says, but deliver us from evil. That is the evil one, Satan. You know, there is only one who can rescue us from the evil of Satan. There's only one who can rescue us from the evil of the world. There is only one who can rescue us from the evil within, and it is only God. And so we come to him as needy children, asking him to deliver us from evil. Let me end with this. You know, I think many people's questions are, does God really respond to prayer? Does God really hear my prayer? Does he answer prayer? And I would encourage you that God responds every time. You see, I have this thing called an iPad and my children love electronics. And maybe you have this happen in your house, but my children will come to me Um, almost daily at times, if I'm around, uh, maybe multiple times a day. And they will ask me, dad, can I play your iPad? Can I play your iPad? Has anyone have any of you? And I will respond to them and I will say three things. I will either say, yes, you finished your schoolwork. Feel free, play 30 minutes on the iPad. Or I will say, no, you watch TV for two hours this morning. You don't need any more electronics. Or I will say later, I'll say, you know what? It's a beautiful day. Go out and play. And when you need a break, you can come in and play 30 minutes. You know, I would suggest that God answers us in the exact same way. And he does it not because he is disillusioned or distant, but because he loves us. You know, the reason I tell my children yes is because I love them. The reason I tell them no is because I love them. And the reason I tell them later is because I love them. And so when you come to God and you make your request to God, he will respond and he will say yes, or he will say no, or he will say later. But whatever response he gives, it is ultimately for his glory and because he loves you. You know, the greatest demonstration 
of a God-centered, kingdom-centered, intimate prayer was the prayer Jesus offered up just before he was arrested. He went into a garden with his disciples and he went to pray and he prayed this simple prayer. He said, Father, there's the intimacy. He said, if, it, if you are willing, your will, not mine, remove this cup from me. That is the cup of God's wrath. Jesus is saying, I don't want this. Can you please take it from me? But then he ends saying, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You know, I've heard it said that this last phrase is kind of like a safety in a gun. You can ask God whatever you want. Go and ask courageously. But then start your prayer and end your prayer saying, but not what I want, Lord. Let your will be done. And so go and pray to God intimately. Pray kingdomly. And pray needingly. Let's pray. Lord, we come here, God, and confess that so often our prayer life is all about us. Lord, help us to have a Copernican revolution. Help us to make our prayer life and then the rest of our life about you and about your glory, Lord. Work deep within us to make you our joy, to make you our glory, to make you our end purpose. Lord, as we come to your table, we are reminded that the primary reason Jesus came to die was for the glory of your name. Yes, you loved us. Yes, you care for us. But Jesus came for your glory. And so God, pray that as we take these elements, that you would be glorified, that we would do it with repentant hearts and right hearts, and that we would be nourished to live for you and you alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.